group. And it's great to see so many people here, and thank you very much, everyone, for coming along today. So I think we've got a very extremely interesting panel of speakers. And uh, Dermot Malidi, who will be chairing the meeting today, and whose uh, second book on John Redmond is due out, is it October? Dermot? It'll be on the 24th of October. 24th of October on John Redmond. <coughs> He's already written the, the first volume of it. So it's just my pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Minister of State Pascal O'Donoghue. Thank you very much for coming, taking the time to come and uh, open the conference for us. And I'm glad to say you knew actually a good friend of mine. It is. Uh, Anne Holliday, who's in Fine Gael and a founder yes. member of Reform as well. A good friend of all of, of, all of us in Reform. So without further ado, Thank if you. I could ask you, Minister, to say a few words. Thank you very much. Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. And... Uh, it's great to see so many people turning out on an afternoon like this and uh, I wanted to begin just by thanking the Reform Group for their invitation to speak here this afternoon uh, on this seminar that's examining the role of the Royal Irish Constabulary in Irish history. Um, I just want to begin to, on a personal note, as we've just touched on there, that one of the founder members of your own group is a lady called Anne Halliday, uh, who is a, a neighbour of mine. Uh, where I live in Dublin, and was a woman of grace, decency, and honesty, she was. And she was very, very personally kind to me at the start of my political career. I had the honour of attending her, uh, her wedding, and then the sadness of attending her funeral not so long after. And uh, it was uh, uh, somebody who was, who was missed in all the activities that she was involved in. Um, uh, as I say that, I just want to move on to a second personal note. I want to thank Mert for the opportunity to speak with you here this afternoon. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave you shortly after I speak. Uh, one of the things that I've learned upon, be, uh, upon my recent appointment of a Minister for State is that suddenly the number of commitments and things that I'm involved in have grown really exponentially. And I have another commitment this afternoon that I need to honour. Uh, so please don't uh, take my exit as a, an act of discourtesy to you. I just have other, other commitments across the afternoon and weekend that I need to honour. Um, and I think it's really, really appropriate that we're meeting here in Wynn's Hotel here in Dublin. And it's very appropriate for two reasons. The first reason it's very uh, appropriate is a very contemporary one. Uh, Wynn's Hotel here is a centre of much contemporary political debate. If there's ever a referendum going on in Ireland, a campaign going on in Ireland, um, or any issue of public interest or moment, there's normally a meeting held in this room about us, some kind of a debate, some kind of a public meeting. And I've spent many a moment seated here up on the top table um, arguing for a referenda uh, and arguing for uh, one side of a particular argument. So I think it's very appropriate we're all located here this afternoon given that kind of contemporary use. The other reason, of course, it's very uh, appropriate, uh, I suppose, has uh, a bit more historical resonance. You're all aware that this weekend, of course, is All-Ireland Final Weekend, and many of you will be aware that this is a hotel in which many uh, county teams uh, can stay in here or which their supporters frequently stay in here. Uh, and I'm sure the bar and the rooms here tonight will be full of people who are really looking forward to the fantastic occasion tomorrow. But of course, just around the corner from here, the founder, uh, one of the founders of Common Lucas Gale, Michael Cusack, 
ran his civil service academy. And according to an author who looked at the role of that institution at that time, it turned out candidates for various branches of government, including the Royal Irish Constabulary. And indeed, Cusack's grind schools were the most successful in Dublin between 1878 and 1888, during which, as one historian has said, he was striving to create a rival sporting organisation to foster native games and sports. And I suppose that's a theme, really, or an example that illustrates, I imagine, one of the points he'll be touching on this afternoon, which is the very interwoven nature of Irish history. The fact that we have layers of layers of different things going on, running parallel and running complementary to each other. We have one of the people who was involved in the growth of cultural and sporting organisations, whose aim was to assert Ireland's separateness and distinctiveness from England, but at the same time, he was successfully training candidates to succeed in their entrance exams for the Royal Irish um, Constabulary and for the broader British Civil Service. And that leads me on to three points that I'd like to make in my opening contribution here to this. The first one, and this is something that I believe very strongly in, and one of the things that really got me interested in politics as a young man and as a young student was a deep interest in history. It's one of the reasons I wanted to come along here today but particularly in the way history needs to be made come alive. Uh, I've long believed that history that is not the basis is history that will be forgotten. It will be dormant. In turn, history that is forgotten makes our present far less rich and makes us all poorer in our efforts to navigate the future. And crucial to that debate is attempting, attempting to recognise history in its totality, attempting to give a comprehensive assessment of what happens in history. That leads me on to my second point. This point of totality is vital in any attempt uh, to assess the Royal Irish Constabulary. When considering the role played by the RIC in our history, it's tempting just to see it through the prism of the War, Independ of, the war of Independence. But that would be wrong be wrong in the same way that it would be examined, wrong to examine the RIC's role by ignoring what happened in the War of Independence. So we have to look at all of these things in the round and in their totality. Events such as the enforcement of eviction orders during the land war, their role in the collection of tithes due to the established church, and the killing of the Lochnan brothers in Galway, and their association with Bloody Sunday and the burning of Cork must be recognised in any attempt to assess their role in our history. But while it would be wrong to forget these events, we must also recognise other dimensions and other facets in their history. Like any police force, their popularity fell and rose at different points. Indeed, during the mid-19th century, members of the RIC, and again I'm quoting from a history of that period, were respected for their competency based on training and examinations possessing local knowledge that few others could get. Their force was successful in reducing the le general level of crime in Ireland prior to the Constabulary of Ireland Act of 1822. The RIC constables engaged in what I would describe as community policing at that time, where they were involved in and integrated with in local communities. And in addition to their policing role, members of the force also developed local government duties and responsibilities. And of course, we have to recognise and look at the loss of life that was involved 
at all times during their history as an organisation. And then as the world slipped into the war at the beginning of the last century, the political environment in Ireland rapidly changed. This change had profound consequences for the RIC and for their members. As the War of Independence took hold, and with the boycott of RIC constables and their families being stepped up, RIC personnel had very difficult and very challenging choices to make. A history of that period notes that some had brothers in the IRA, others had long service in that organisation, all of them had a choice to make. Resign, fight along the Black and Tans and the Auxiliary Division, or in other cases, cooperate with the IRA. A huge diversity of choices were made by individuals all involved in one organisation. While many did resign, and many conducted themselves in different ways, some decided to remain, some decided to leave, and some were involved in many of the most difficult and darkest moments of the War of Independence. And that leads me on to my third point, and perhaps my core point, which is that the involvement or the role of the RIC in Irish history is not a simple story to tell. History that is simple is often history that either is not accurate or simply does not recognise the profound complexity of choices facing individuals and facing institutions. I believe we need to remember and debate and think about our history in its entirety. And through doing that, and by this process, ensure this includes the role of the Royal Irish Constabulary. And as I look at the very large number of you that are here this afternoon, it's clear that appetite is something that is broad-based. So in summary, allow me to conclude by saying that the broader the memory, the better the understanding. And it is in that spirit that I wish you all a very productive afternoon and thank you all very much for the opportunity to open this event. Thank you. This day last week saw the um, commemoration and reenactment of scenes from the 1913 lockout. Uh, I think it's fair to say that in that uh, the police were uh, portrayed for the most part as the bad guys. Uh, staying in the spirit of the decade of commemoration, I think as good a point as any to, um, to begin the seminar today would be to, to go back to this date uh, exactly 100 years ago and um, to consider the, the way in which uh, the average RIC member of the time or, or indeed a member of the Dublin Metropolitan Police would have seen his future. Um, in September 1913, the third Home Rule Bill was two-thirds of the way through its parliamentary run. Um, most people expected it to be passed in, uh, sometime before the summer of 1914 and to become law, which meant that an Irish Parliament would be opening sometime in 1915. And under the third Home Rule Bill, um, control of the police was to be retained by the Westminster Parliament for six years after the opening of the Parliament. But uh, after that time, control would then devolve to the Dublin uh, government. So in other words, sometime in, in 1921 was when most uh, policemen would have expected to uh, have control transferred to the local parliament. Um, so most Irish policemen then would have expected uh, to uh, work out their careers in relative peace and quiet. Uh, 
If they were old enough, they uh, probably looked forward to retiring before the transfer of control. If they were young enough, they probably they they may have they <coughs> being people of different views themselves, being a mixture of Catholic and uh, Protestant, Unionists and Nationalists, um, they would have had differing um, expectations as to whether they would um, continue to serve under the semi-independent or autonomous Home Rule Parliament, or whether they retire, resign. Um, but few. Few, if any, of them could have foreseen the trauma that was about to descend on, on them in the following uh, decade. Um, in the 47 years before 1913, uh, thir a total of 39 policemen had died violently. Now, in just six years after that day, or in, in just six years from 1916 to 22, five, um, 500 would die violently. In, in, the, in the single week of the Easter Rebellion alone, uh, 18 would be killed and um, and there are many more figures which could be given out I'm sure our four speakers will uh, will are more qualified than I am to give to set all this information into its historical context for an earlier chapter my aging memory was actually right because Jim confirms Duff was a Catholic monk uh, before his RAC service. I think it was after his shipwreck. Now, whether the shipwreck turned him in a profoundly religious direction for a brief period, I don't know. But uh, it sounds like a story which would make a fantastic film. Uh, Pascal Donoghue mentioned the GAA at the start, and tomorrow there's an event in All-Ireland hurling final in Croke Park. And one of the ghosts there will be the ma a man mentioned uh, by Jim Herlihy, namely Thomas McCarthy from Bansha, County Tipperary. And in accordance with the rules, he could not serve in South Riding. He was district inspector in North Riding. He was a young man of 22 when the GAA was founded. His father was a Kerry man from Tralee and a district inspector as well, which is one more example of the huge family tradition that was going on. But within four years, the year the first All-Ireland Hurling Final took place in 1888, four years after the founding, the ban came in. And the explanation goes back to the founding of the GA itself, and that the seven people credited with being present in Hayes' Hotel in Thurles on that occasion. One was a builder. Uh, I'm not uttering that term with any prejudice from recent years in this country. A builder and Athenian called uh, Joseph Bracken. And in the amazing twists of Irish history, his son, Brendan, was a close friend of Churchill and his Minister for Information during World War II. Uh, it reminds me of the line of Louis MacNeice in one of his poems, The Drunkenness of Things Being Various. And the history of Ireland and the history of the RAC can be summed up in that line of MacNeice, The Drunkenness of Things Being Various. But the influence of Bracken, the IRB man of the seven who were present, turned out to be the decisive influence on the GAA, not the presence of uh, an RAC district inspector. And as Jim pointed out, he was an enthusiast for rugby. I, my recollection was that, in fact, he was capped for Ireland, that he played for Ireland against Wales, as well as playing rugby in Tipperary and for Trinity and for Cusick's team, that he actually was capped against Wales. But in any event, before the GAA was founded, he was a man who was mad about sports. And the founding people of the GAA, Morris Davin from Carrick and Shore, who was a great athlete, and Michael Cusick, were people passionate about sport, not about using the GAA or sport as a weapon in an armed conspiracy or in uh, the, uh, any revolution, whereas Bracken was... And the influence of Bracken led to the two bans, the ban on the RIC only four years after the founding and the ban then on the so-called farm games, games, which meant that somebody like McCarthy was doubly hit, being a lover of rugby 
and being uh, in the RIC, they were doubly excluded. And that ethos continues on. And talking of poetry, when Seamus Heaney died recently, the BBC opened up within a few lines at the start of their obituary on him in terms of the line of his, uh, I'm not sure what year it was written about, no glass of ours was ever raised to toast the Queen. And I thought there's a missing line underneath that which could run, no glass of ours was raised to toast the boys in Bottle Green, murdered or maimed boys in Bottle Green. Now Seamus didn't write that, but the real question about the ambiguous line about not toasting the Queen is where you stand on the maiming and murder of the boys in Bottle Green. And I think Tip O'Neill once remarked that all politics is local. Well, also so is all history. Not that you only tell the local stories, but a general story means nothing if you cannot flesh it out and show how it actually describes the reality on the ground. And for me, the story of the boys in Bottle Green is also a personal story. I have two reservations about the RIC. My uh, great-grandfather joined it and died at 45, and his oldest son died at 50. So I sincerely hope that whatever particular gene went through that part of the RAC has not passed on down to me. Luckily, I've passed those two milestones, and hopefully uh, I will continue on for a long time. The younger one uh, spent six years in the RAC in Limerick City, and at that stage, the ratio of officers to Limerick City population was 23 for 10,000 of the population. Obviously, he did a much better job than has been done in recent years in Limerick City, where they need a ratio of about 10 times that to deal with some of the problems there. He then went, after six years, to Australia. But Jim mentioned that if you had a, uh, a father in the force, you got a year off the age. Well, he did an awful lot better. He didn't come in at 18, he got in at 16. Now, I suspect that everything was known about everybody by the constabulary. And he was living just six miles from Kenny City, where the county inspector was, and the district inspector was based. I have no doubt that his age was very well known. And I suspect if there was no official, there was certainly must have been an unofficial doctoring of the record to let him in at only 16. He was um, of full height or more, so he probably looked OK. But I'm very grateful that whoever looked over the records didn't pay a very careful attention to the, the literally following, following the rules. Uh, at that stage, the county headquarters in my native city of Kilkenny was in Parliament Street. And in 1940, my father was based there in the Garda Station Party. And he told me with horror when the internment of the IRA was coming in. He had a, two lists of the IRA. He had those who were the Republicans and those who were the effing Republicans who would shoot you in the back. And he had a very definite, clear categorisation of them into those two camps. And on the list that came down was a publican called Paddy Gleeson in Kilkenny, who later became pub uh, political, who joined Planet Public, uh, who stood for election, became mayor of the city. And my father was very firmly convinced that this man definitely was one of the, the hanger-on Republicans, not the thugs who would shoot you in the back. And he was on the list. It wasn't local knowledge that put him on the list. Whether it was political or whether it was uh, crime three in headquarters, or both, I don't know, but it certainly was not local knowledge. And it came back to me doing some research in the, in the census. The president of the GAA for 20 years, the only man to ever hold the office for that long year, term of time, was James Nolan, who came from the same street, and the same side of the street as I came from in Kilkenny City. And Nolan was a man in his 50s, and he was interned in 1916. Now, when I knew the numbers interned, I presumed automatically I knew the numbers who took part in the rising, so therefore they got most or all of them. Uh, I'm not aware that the lists of those interned 
were as dubious as that, but it must have been a massive PR own goal to include a GA president in the list of those interned. To, interned. Nothing happened in Kilkenny before 1916. Nothing happened in 1916, and very little happened in 1919 to 21 in the county. And Ernie O'Malley came at one stage to try and stir things up, and wasn't exactly a huge uh, success in that. So there was a very zealous county inspector, a Catholic, incidentally, from County Meath, uh, called Pierce Power, who was in Kilkenny around that era and for most of the troubles afterwards. Now, whether he was more influential or not, but I can't imagine that a decision to intern the GA president would have been unnoticed or would not have been carefully considered and vetted, uh, not only in the Crime Branch Special Office in Dublin Castle, but uh, a great deal, and possibly by the civil or political administration of the day. And as a known goal in terms of creating problems and adding to problems, that strikes me as one spectacular one. There was also a large number of others. His nephew was picked up, and another young lad from the same street. But what's interesting in looking at the census on that particular street, that small street and the two ones beside it was riddled with peelers. There was a sergeant and two constables and three pensioners living either there or in the adjoining streets. And a small number of houses. So everything that happened in that small locality in my native city was absolutely known. And the pensioners reported every month when they got their pension. And I didn't just talk about the weather. They reported back to the district headquarters. And the district headquarters and county headquarters were only a few yards down the street as well. So the idea that there was no knowledge local knowledge would have been absolutely superb. And in fact, at the time of the rising, there were over 8,300, I think, pensioners around the country who were a huge additional resource in terms of eyes and ears for the constabulary. And uh, as I think was it, uh, Jim MacDonald talked about the, the failure to uh, coordinate the two forces, the DMP and the RAC. It's fascinating when you look at the RAC list for even 1920, the t total lack of resources to the intelligence field that existed. There was a tiny office in Dublin Castle, there was a county inspector and a handful there who were coordinating and dealing with intelligence, and you had the crucial role of sergeants in each county around uh, the country, providing the eyes and ears in effect, but no further specialised operation being carried out, or nothing on the lines of the G Division, even in the Dublin Metropolitan Division. So the amateurishness of it was unbelievable. Indeed, the British Army, when they became involved, arrived having dismantled their intelligence structure, which they had built up during World War I. So when they needed something like that, and particularly coming in as outsiders, they arrived blind, but in a situation in which the self-defeating aspect of having no proper structure, nor developing one, is, is, is mind-blowing. And I remember a conversation with John Gorman, a very interesting character. He was a district inspector in the RIC. He won a military cross in 1944 in Normandy. His father served as an ex-army officer. Uh, John then went into the RUC from the Irish Guards. His father had been in the British Army and was the last commandant of the training depot in the Phoenix Park in 1922. He went north. He became county inspector in County Derry, uh, from which uh, place uh, Borden, the, last, the first Catholic chief inspector, uh, inspector general of the RIC, had come. And a fascinating example of the way in which the family tradition, John's son and grandson served in the Irish Guards as well. So to situate the RIC story, I think one part of it is the huge reality of what you might call loyal Ireland, which was absolutely massive. In 1916, the post office was seized in other buildings by a tiny fringe. Uh, not even 2,000 are believed to have taken part during the week in that rising. Uh, at that stage, where did Ireland stand? It's amazing you have had 
the combination of silence and demonisation of the RIC, particularly relating to those years. And yet the reality was very, very interesting. You had the National Volunteers loyal to Redmond reaching a peak strength of the highest estimate of something like 180 or 90,000. Some estimates uh, suggest less than that. Uh, you had the Ulster Volunteers in the north with anything up to 90,000 at their peak. You had a huge number, 200 odd thousand serving in the British forces during World War I. Some of that is double counting because some of them were serving in the National Volunteers or the Irish Volunteers. But the huge preponderance of mobilised Ireland between the RIC, the Dublin Metropolitan Police, the British Army and Navy and then eventually the Royal Air Force, the two sets of constitutional volunteers, the massive preponderance was overwhelmingly in one direction of peaceful politics, whereas the armed revolutionaries were a tiny fringe. And the way history has been rewritten subsequently was that the RIC had been uh, written out. Over the last number of years, there's been a lot of activity, uh, a lot of writing, a lot of attention paid to Irishmen in the British forces. In 90, November 97, the foundation was laid in Flanders in Messine for uh, around Tower. And the following year, it was opened by President Mary McAleese <laughs> and by Queen Elizabeth, and uh, which commemorated when the 16th Irish and 36th Ulster Division fought together at that spot. That hasn't happened in regard to the history of the RAC. You've had a huge amount of work done by various people, and Jim Hurley, he, I had never met Jim before. I expected to see somebody who was a physical wreck, because if you've done the amount of research, which obviously Jim has done, I expected <coughs> that you would be an absolute total uh, sufferer from amnesia or whatever. He has done a massive amount of work. And I just I may later come on to mention one or two particular stories which are worth highlighting from his, his work. But that work has happened. There have been various other books. But two things have not happened. The story of the British Army is being researched locally. There's a huge, massive volume produced in my native county recently on Irish men in World War I. And it goes into massive detail. It's on the same calibre uh, and scale of the work Jim has done, for example, his, his last thing on RIC officers. That took donkey's years to produce. That's been happening. It's not been done locally, again, by people around the country in the, for the RIC, the way it has been done, say, for service in the British Army. And also at national level, when Tom Burke of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers Association got a, I think, MBE from Her Majesty some years ago, Bertie Herden through a reception in Dublin Castle. Uh, again, when uh, the Round Tower project was underway, uh, Mary McAleese, whose own personal background was in North Belfast, and in a very Republican background part of North Belfast. The view on the other side was that uh, Paddy Lenehan's bar was the officer's mess of the 3rd Battalion, uh, Ardine Battalion of the Provo IRA, and Mary travelled a very long journey in, t in, in her political life and her personal life. But that uh, process of national recognition of the khaki um, as being a story about the orange and green has not yet happened at national level in the same way in regard to the bottle green. And in fact, the Bottle Green story is a very interesting one because those who served in World War I overwhelmingly served for a few years. The RIC were lifers for the vast part, and they came in and they served for the full uh, career. So you have absolutely well, massively in excess of two million man years of service delivered in the era of the RIC by Irish men. But an interesting thing struck me many years ago, about 97, whenever Jim Hurley's first book came out, reading through the list of casualties, and again, when Richard Abbott produced his book later on, it struck me that this was not being described fully, and certainly what I grew up with did not describe it, because it was a, a class war. The big farmers, or strong farmers' sons in Munster, were very prominent in shooting down the guys. And who were they shooting down? 
Well, Tom Crean got a lot of publicity, the petty officer of the Royal Navy, who was the famous Antarctic explorer. His brother, Sergeant Conn, was an RAC sergeant in County Cork, a Kerry man. And Con Crean was shot down. Now, I doubt if Con Crean was any more uh, an alien oppressor of the Irish race than was uh, his brother, petty officer Tom Crean. And yet the Tom Creans of our land were written out of history and ignored. And the reality that there was no war of independence, there was a Dublin and Munster war, and that in particular there was this class element that those who died to a disproportionate extent were, as the RIC were, farmers' sons, but particularly so many of them from the west of Ireland. But the reality of the RIC, again, is absolutely fascinating. When you look at the 1911 census, look at the various Belfast barracks of the RIC, you find something amazing. And I took an example, the most unlikely one of all of them, Brown Square barracks in the heart of Belfast, which pleased the Shankill and the Woodvale area of Belfast, the most true blue loyalist part of Belfast you could find. In 1911, it is 31% Catholic, the station party there of 29 55% overall were from the south. The rest of them were either, all the Catholics, I think, were Southern Catholics. The other Southerners were Protestant. Almost all of them were actually Church of Ireland. So the most true blue loyalist heartland in Belfast, around the Shankill and Woodvale, was pleased by 55% of Southerners. And that also reminds me, too, the same pattern, by the way, is found by and large if you look at the census for every other RIC barracks across Belfast. But particularly intrigued me, too, was a man, Richard Harrison. Uh, Republican propaganda, then as now, has been absolutely world-class, unbeatable, outstanding, and rarely scrutinised. And Harrison was the subject of Republican propaganda. Vague innuendo, but nothing definite. OK, I'm biased being a Kilkenny man, but Harrison came from the other side of the river, a short distance where I was born, on one side of the military barracks. And just beside the military barracks, uh, there was another man, a Cork man, or a, a, from a Cork family rather, a young man called Liam Tobin. Tobin was born in 1895. Richard Harrison, who was the son of a DI, again this pattern which happened so often, was born in 1883. And Tobin went to school along the banks of the river. Around the corner was the school where Richard Harrison went, uh, Kilkenny College, which was then in John Street, and right beside it was the John Street sub-district of the RIC. Now, unless young Tobin threw a stone at Harrison when Harrison was going to school, and unless Harrison flattered him, I don't know why a young lad in Kilkenny growing up in a city that was peaceful uh, very much, in which there was no, certainly no sectarian tradition, how he ends up as the key figure under Collins in the Volunteers Intelligence Operation in Dublin, and uh, a very major figure in that. It's a fascinating question. Uh, one angle on Harrison which fascinated me was, which I got from Eamon Phoenix, uh, the historian in Belfast. Phoenix knew James Kelly, who was a leading uh, 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 writer, journalist with the Irish News in Belfast. And I didn't know, but uh, Kelly's, Kelly lived to be about 100. His father was an RAC man from Kilkenny and a contemporary of Richard Harrison. And the take which James Kelly had, which Phoenix relates to me, was that he had huge admiration for Harrison as he was the city commissioner in Belfast in the 1930s. He joined as a district inspector. In 1920, he became a county inspector and for a period was staff officer of the special constabulary. And then he became city commissioner in charge of Belfast. And in the 1930s, mid-1930s, where you had rioting going on, he was a very firm and effective uh, figure in the view of James Kelly, who would certainly not have been uh, liable to be 
going soft on loyalist writers in 1935 or 36. He had said he had huge admiration for the way, in fact, in which Harrison, as the city commander, uh, operated against that situation at that point. Which leads me to wonder whether the Republican attempt to smear Harrison in terms of reprisals and so on as an earlier era was anything other than more brilliant propaganda. But it does fascinate me to look at how men literally a few yards apart can end up in such different contexts. And uh, furthermore, when there wasn't such a huge tradition, the IRB tradition took over the GAA. Again, that makes total sense at one level. Who wants to attend meeting after meeting? Fanatics probably do. Uh, I think in some trade unions, in secondary teachers, for example, I think that the line they have taken in this country indicates people who attend meetings are not representative. So the IRB, if they were fanatical, would attend meeting after meeting, would readily get control of any organisation, which they did. The GAA was the first, the Gaelic League subsequently, the Irish Volunteers, again, the small element, the Irish Volunteers, a huge mass movement, the IRB got control of it. Uh, just talking to Dermot before I started, he mentioned that the RIC had huge files on the GAA and they divided them into the, the bulk of areas where they were, uh, the clergy may have been influential or which they were genuine sporting and small area where there might have been strong IRB influence. Well, at national level, the rule changes, certainly, the huge influence of the IRB took place and considering it took so long for the rule change to happen, for the reversal of the ban on the RUC and the reversal of the ban on so-called foreign games, that that was unchallenged for so long, is absolutely amazing. And I thought of um, the unchallenged history, and I, I disagree with Pascal's opening phrase about history, because the absence of history, in fact, means not no history, it means wrong history. It means history as a tool of those who have got a very different agenda. And I think that makes us all the more sinister if history is not properly taught and explored and formed in our schools. And I thought of a line of um, McNeese. Uh, in 1939, McNeese uh, produced a poem, Autumn Journal, with the following lines. The land of saints and scholars, saints and scholars my eye, the land of ambush. And that related, I think, to his own family story. McNeese's first cousin was a Sergeant Frizzell. And in violation of the truce and the treaty, Frizzell was a police sergeant in, around the loop on the shores of Loch Ney when he was gunned down along with a special constable in 1922. So it was very personal when McNeese penned those lines. Uh, and it's interesting, the, story, the Frizzell story. When I was growing up in Kenny, there was a woman in the post office, a post office clerk, whose build would have got her into the RIC. In fact, I knew that she was the daughter of the head constable who retired in late 1916 there. What I didn't discover until much more recently was that he came from Sligo. And Louis McNeese's cousin, the sergeant, who was gunned down for no particular reason other than the bottle green he wore, he was the third generation. His father was an RIC man. His grandfather was a Limerick-born RIC sergeant in Mayo. And again, there's a pattern of not only family history, but a pattern very much of people being singled out for wearing that uniform. And my final point is, I don't simply think of commemorating them. I stand with pride uh, in the phrase which uh, Sean McEntee, Fianna Fáil, Tarnished, I think, referred at one stage to Noel Brown as a peeler's get. His father was an, RUC, an RSC sergeant, which Brown never wanted to mention and ruled it, refused to mention it in his autobiography. Well, I stand with pride on that because the laws enforced were substantially carried on by the new Irish state. 
the enforcement of that, particularly as time went on, was by a force which was technically armed. When they changed carbines in 1899, the report in the House of Commons said in the previous decade their carbines had been used on 14 occasions. That was more an unarmed than an armed force. So the image of this heavily armed force, in fact, has little reality. The people who formed it, people came from this country, the people of this country, orange and green, but massively from the Catholic tribe, and particularly farmer's sons, as you find amazingly when you look even at the Belfast uh, station parties in the 1911 census. I think that the task today facing people in this room and facing this country is to recognise that we've had for many years a National Day of Commemoration uh, in July, honouring Irish men who served in different armies. We need a National Day of Commemoration honouring the story of Irish policing. Carl O'Callaghan, the head commissioner in Western Australia, is the fifth Irishman to head that force. Ray Kelly, the commissioner of the NYPD in New York. Peter Fahey, chief constable today in Manchester. The list goes on and on. The story is one story. The RIC are one chapter in a story of honourable service, of distinguished service, and of courage, and I think that it needs to be told and told as part of that and something to be absolutely unhesitatingly proud of and as part of the diaspora and also I'm particularly proud too that my great uncle who learned this policing in Limerick in the RIC went on and tragically he died at only 50 as an inspector in Australia so I hope I don't follow that but I think we all have a story to tell and if we don't tell that story we not only dishonour our family history we dishonour the Irish diaspora and the pride which we should have in the values and principles and decency which all branches of Irish policing, the Gardaí, the RUC, the RIC and abroad around the world is something which is hugely part of our Irish identity and story.